Coming up, it is episode 25 of the Put It On The Board podcast and the first episode of the offseason, uh, the first episode after the season. And we took a little bit of a break because the White Sox took a little bit of a break uh, with playing compelling baseball in general. So uh, after a long hiatus, it's time to dive back into this team address some of the roster moves and roster decisions that are uh, coming down the pipeline here with the off season and a 2024 season to look forward to. So uh, recapping some of the biggest moves the White Sox have made and my philosophy on where they could go this off season to make them at least entertaining to watch uh, next, uh, next year when opening day rolls around. So a lot to get into and a lot more podcast episodes Coming in the near future as we begin to break down the 2024 Chicago White Sox and how the White Sox fix the absolute disaster that is. So uh, let's keep it here. Keep it dialed in. Sit back, relax and strap it down. It's time to put it on the board. This is episode 25 of the Put It On The Board podcast. It is our first off-season podcast uh, of the fall slash winter here, Noah. Uh, A long hiatus. It's been a while since we've sat down and talked White Sox baseball. Quite frankly, it's been a while since I've had interesting thoughts about White Sox baseball other than just meh. Uh, That's kind of what it's been here, but uh, over the last couple days or so, I have gotten a bit of the off-season buzz not for much, right? I think, you know, it's all relative and it's a little bit of a different feeling than, uh, you know, the off seasons have been in years past where there was some, some level of expectation. Uh, but I am looking forward to seeing the direction that Chris, Chris gets and uh, the new front office goes as they shake up what is a shell of a roster at the moment. Uh, and the plan reported by everybody is contend, I guess there. There's a lot of things that need to come and a lot of things the White Sox have already done. Yeah, people have been calling for change, and we'll get into the move specifically here in a bit, but change has happened so far, uh, at least to some extent. So we will see if change happens to more extent. But yeah, like you said, the narrative that the White Sox at least are putting out there is they are trying to contend next year. And I think any fan with a brain probably looks at the 10 holes at least on this roster and says, I just don't think that's going to happen. But for whatever reason, that's what the White Sox are telling people. Maybe they're trying to sell a few extra April tickets. I don't know, but 10 holes feels generous. And I mean, like I've broken down this roster a few times of like guys that I believe are quality and by quality i mean average to above average major league players or guys that you can just pencil into their spots for the 2024 team right now and i have about 10 guys uh that i feel confident where they're going to slot in like the white Sox have over half their roster currently in limbo and that includes multiple starting position players. It includes about three and a half starting pitching spots to fill uh, a whole lot of depth. It includes trying to figure out what sort of roles you even have in the bullpen. They have some bullpen arms, but like who goes where 
it's ugly and there's not a ton here right now. So yeah, when you look at a team that is allegedly looking to contend, you naturally have to ask yourself the question, well, what does that look like? Like, how is it possible for a team to make as many moves as the White Sox would seemingly have to make in order to field a a team that's not just competitive, but like looks like a major league roster going in right now. Like there's, names on this 26-man roster or even 40-man roster that have no business in Major League Baseball. Uh, And I was curious to see how this offseason would start, and it all started with the options and this option wave that teams had right after the World Series ended, and really three big ones for the White Sox being Liam Hendricks, Mike Clevenger, and Tim Anderson. We can start with Liam Hendricks because uh, I think this is the most open and shut case of all of them. I saw White Sox fans on Twitter and like people like after they declined the option on Liam Hendricks for $15 million in 2024, very upset, up in arms. Like, how could you do this? Poverty franchise, sell the team, all valid things, right? <laughs> like, let's be very upset and uh, yeah, bad organization. This is the right move. Uh, there's really no two ways about it. Yeah, I'm with you. And I, I remember having some interactions. So back when Liam's Tommy John surgery was announced, and for those of you who may not know, Liam Hendricks probably won't pitch in 2024. If he does, it'll be maybe the last month of the season. So if the White Sox were to pick up his option, you're talking about one month of Liam Hendricks and paying him $15 million next year. It it just doesn't make sense. And when his Tommy John surgery was first announced, I made a comment, you know, something along the lines of it doesn't really make sense for them to pick up his option. I was told I am just as greedy as Jerry Reinsdorf and that um, Liam's been a great guy for this organization and, and the Sox are hanging him out to dry if they don't pick up his option. Personally, I, I can do simple math and, uh, 1.5 million for the next 10 years. How much is that, Sam? But yeah, I mean, he's going to get his money. Like this is not like the White Sox declining to pay somebody because he had Tommy John after he had cancer. This is the White Sox choosing to pay out his $15 million over 10 years, so they're not taking $15 million of a cap hit against the salary cap in a year that this guy cannot pitch for them. I have heard Liam Hendricks has publicly said he would like to come back. I still think that is a possibility. The White Sox would have to negotiate something that perhaps pays Liam into 2025 uh, with money being deferred to 2025 to keep him around the organization this year. He can rehab at all of the White Sox facilities, get care from their doctors, hang around the team, all of those things Liam wants to do. And I'm him and his wife are very happy in Chicago. They do great work in the Chicago community. So there are options to keep Liam around Chicago. Uh, that also makes sense for the White Sox. It just, from a business perspective. And yes, there is a business perspective to every professional sport. It does not make sense to pay $15 million for a pitcher that cannot pitch for you when there is another option to pay him 1.5. Simple math there. So yeah, you know, cry me a river. This was the right move for the Sox. The question, I guess the only question about two questions about this. Number one, do they work something out with Liam Hendricks? 
to have him potentially come back, whether that's September or 2025. And number two, what do they do with these cap savings, if anything? Uh, I mean, it's a good thing to have and the right move for Jerry Reinsdorf regardless. But, uh, you know, I'm sure White Sox fans are like, all right, you saved $13.5 million. Let's see it turn into uh, some other players that you can add to this roster. Yeah, I mean, for the $13.5 million, the White Sox could sign two late-inning relievers, or maybe not elite closers, but they could sign two solid relievers for the price that they would be paying Liam Hendricks to sit on the injured list the whole year. So I that's the thing, and that's always the question, is the White Sox saved money. Are they going to use that money, or right. is this money that Jerry's going to put in his pocket? And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more when it comes to uh, the decision around Tim Anderson in a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we, we're we going to have to break down this offseason into, into a number of podcasts here because uh, I think there's a lot of different ways we can go. Number one being what we're doing now is reacting to what has happened and discussing the offseason uh, as a whole. I will give you sort of a, a plan that I just cooked up here today, uh, more of a, a – a dream scenario, a realistic dream scenario. And I'll get more into detail about that later. But no, I think we're going to have a podcast later on about predictions uh, for free agents, uh, maybe a wish list for free agents. We're going to have to break down some of the different trade possibilities and free agent possibilities as well. Um, There's a lot of things that you can dive into about this White Sox team and some interesting narratives. They're at least interesting. Uh, And so this is the 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 fun part about doing a podcast about them is like they might be bad and they might be uh, one of the worst rosters in baseball right now, but it is interesting to see where the front office takes this. Jerry has not held any punches about saying, "Well, I'd like to I'd like to win some games," but how does Jerry get there? I, I don't know. Yeah, I, it's a level of intrigue. And I know every year we say the White Sox are interesting. This offseason will be interesting. But I think this type of intrigue is a little bit different. This is not the, you know, uh, we're a couple of moves away from being a World Series contender, but we have holes at second base and right field. So it'll, I'll be interested to see how they fill those holes. This is, this team is broken and they need to be fixed. And for the first time in 10 years, Rick Hahn is not, the one fixing it. So a new guy is in there to fix it. They've already parted ways with at least one member of the core. And the rest of this will be interesting because they keep pumping that narrative out there of we're going to be competitive in 2024. And the assumption that comes with that is you're going to be competitive on a Jerry Reinsdorf budget. So how is what I think all these fans want to know. Well, and, what, and, and what is the Jerry Reinsdorf budget? Right. right. I mean, like Jerry Reinsdorf did pay top 10 payroll teams over the last three to four years. But this is, you know, pay three to four years where there, there was an expectation that this team was going to be winning a division. Uh, and I think Jerry saw that and was like, OK, we'll go kind of go as high as Jerry would go. Which I don't remember what it was in 2022, but it was like what in that 175 range, 180 range for payroll. I'll have to look it up, but that sounds right. It was it was up I mean, there. He didn't. It didn't hit 200 million dollars, but it was up in that top like five teams. I think the back end of the top five, 
Uh, and that's about as high as Jerry got. So, like, is he willing to go to that mark again? Or is it going to be 140? Or is it going to be 150? Or is it going to be 120? Like, what? what is Jerry's knowing, one, his age and how many years he might have left as the owner of the team, but then two, like a realistic expectation for the team. And is Jerry going to be willing to spend the extra $30 million if there's not a realistic path to winning a division or a World Series? So according to Spotrack, uh, the White Sox total payroll, including injured list, active payroll, retained salary, and buried minor league salary for 2022 was $215 million. Oh, so it did go over 200. So, I mean, that's up there with the top five to seven payrolls in baseball. So I don't think it goes that high, but no, you know, like how high does it go is a question coming Um, off of two straight years where you missed the playoffs and a series, a season where you just lost a hundred games. It's hard to see it going anywhere near that high again. But I mean, I think all of us, especially if the payroll's down in the, you know, 140 to 150 or even lower range, have a hard time seeing this team jumping to contention. So you mentioned the intrigue. And so I think my level of intrigue is so high from the simple fact that they literally have to do something and like not just something, but they literally have to do a good bit. And I know that sounds like what we say every single year is like, oh, the White Sox have to start making some moves. But, like, they have to. (laughs) And we'll kind of get into why here with the second option. They have one and a half starting pitchers on this team right now. One and a half with the half being Michael Kopech and a one being Dylan Cease, who, like, just had the worst season that he's had in the last three or four seasons. Like, they they have nothing. And and so, like, unless they are going to literally play – random guys that they give minor league contracts to and have a five plus team ERA, they're going to have to go sign three, four guys. And that's where I'm like, okay, well, let's see what direction Chris gets goes with some of those signings and you know where they go. So the reason they got in this position, one and a half starting pitchers is because Mike Clevenger is the second option. The white Sox had, well, the white Sox didn't have it. Mike Clevenger really had it as a mutual option. He declined his part of the mutual option that would have paid him $12 million uh, in 2024. It makes sense for Mike Clevenger. I I think he's looking for two or three years, uh, probably around that same AAV, but he had a very good year for the White Sox. I was hoping he would come back. I was like hoping we could toe that line where it made sense for Mike Clevenger to to just kind of run it back with a team that he knows and knows him. And then it made sense for the White Sox because he was pitching really well. Ultimately, Clev did a little bit too well down the stretch or uh, earned himself a payday. So uh, he likely will not be back. And and that's a big blow to this pitching staff, Noah. Yeah, he was their most consistent starting pitcher last year. And I know he had a couple of IL stints, so he wasn't necessarily healthy the entire year. But when he pitched, he was good. Um, he looked like the old Mike Clevenger, the guy that was an all-star for Cleveland. So I was kind of hoping, but when he had that run in, you know, August and September where he was just pitching really well, every single start, you kind of saw the writing on the wall. So I'm not surprised that he uh, opted out and maybe there's uh, a world where the Sox bring him back because like you said, they do need starting pitching, but 
he's going to get himself a multi-year deal somewhere. So I'm happy for him, um, but it's unfortunate. And it was really outside of the White Sox control. Yeah, he was, he's going to be 33 on opening day, uh, coming off a season that he had a 3.77 ERA and 24 starts uh, and accumulated 3.3 baseball reference war. Uh, a very good season for a soon-to-be 33-year-old right-handed starter. I'd imagine if you're Mike Clevenger, you're looking somewhere in that three-year, $30 million range. Um, maybe that 336, like I, I don't really know how, how long somebody would be willing to go, but if he can get paid throughout his age 35 season, he probably has to view that uh, as a win, looking for more security. Does that make sense for the White Sox? I don't know. We'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, but Noah, the final option decision and the one I'm most interested in talking about here, because I think this is the the widely debated right now topic among White Sox fans. The White Sox had a team option on shortstop Tim Anderson for $14 million. They chose to decline it, which I think was a surprise to a lot of people. Uh, there was kind of an assumption that they would pick that up and at least have TA on the roster throughout the offseason, potentially look to trade him, um, et cetera. But they they choose to decline the $14 million option. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. Good move or bad move for Chris Getz and company? I'm not ready to declare it either way yet, but I will tell you it was a surprising move for me. I expected them to pick up the option. Um. I don't know the ins and outs of the White Sox clubhouse or how Tim Anderson's relationship with the front office was, but from a baseball perspective, I would have picked it up. Um, I, I looked at the list of free agent shortstops and there's not many. I, I I was talking to a friend earlier tonight and we were talking about it a little bit. And the way that I phrased it was if Tim Anderson were not a former White Sox, say, say he came from another team, and the White Sox were in the market for a shortstop this offseason, and I was looking at the free agent list, I would probably say the White Sox should sign Tim Anderson because I think he's the best option available. I think... But should the White Sox sign Tim Anderson for $14 million? I mean, that's the question. Not whether or not you'd like that guy on your roster, but whether you want him on your roster at that price. And counterpoint, too... I think it matters that he's a former White Sox because if Tim Anderson is not in this scenario you just laid out where he is coming from another organization, you can have this idea that a change of scenery, he could be a good culture fit and a change of scenery could be good for him. You know what Tim Anderson is with your current culture and it loses that aspect of like a free agent acquisition knowing that he's been here and the relationship with the the organization and the fan base and some of his teammates has started to deteriorate over the last few years. So those things do matter, I think, uh, and work against the take that they should have picked this up. I think my answer to your question on whether or not I want him at $14 million is it depends on if you're going to use that money. Because if that's just Jerry wants to save $14 million, then why? But if they're going to use that money other places or on a replacement, then I'm interested in seeing who they bring in, which is why I can't fully answer the question yet. But I, my argument would be, money aside, do any of the shortstops on the free agent list, like... 
how am I, how do I want to phrase this? There's no question that Tim Anderson had a bad year. He was very bad. Elvis Andrus had a better year according to war and Mm -hmm. a few other stats than Tim Anderson. 2023 was not a good year for him, but is relying on a bounce back. And even if you're, you know, he bounces back, you're bad. You trade him at the deadline. Is that something that would have been a better option than, you know, trying to patch together the shortstop position based on the options out there. I don't think the White Sox need a long-term free agent option. I, I mean, theoretically, you've got Colson Montgomery, who's a year away at most, you hope. Um, but there's if they're going to contend in 2024 like they say they are, who's going to be their starting shortstop? That's my question. Yeah, so your question was, uh, is there a better – Thing out there like is there a better move for them out there money aside which in my opinion you can't put money aside uh but my answer is still yes so i, I think this is a good move for the white Sox to separate themselves from tim anderson and the main reason why i, I just believe that the white Sox need to wash their hands of everyone possible from this old crappy product that you put out there and i'll get into my plan here and where i see a potential solution being and it's not a sexy solution it's not one that white Sox fans are going to be jazzed up about and you have to have a certain level of like realism to your expectations about a tim anderson replacement i but i think you need to have a certain level of realism about what tim anderson is and it's what you said that like when you look at that list of free agents and you say who is the guy on this free agent that that gets you excited, there's nobody. But there's a couple guys you could make an argument are going to be better options on the field than Tim Anderson is next season. And if it's a guy who is equivalent or potentially better in output, potentially cheaper, potentially gets you away from that stink that I think TA currently carries with a lot of White Sox fans, I think those are all positives. You need to shift the culture. Um, And I think it is a smarter idea for the Sox to save $14 million, give themselves some flexibility to get creative, and see if just another guy who's not going to be your long-term solution can give you one year of production that is better than the check note 582 OPS with one home run your shortstop had last year. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than Tim Anderson was. So I, I have to I have to say that I like it. And, and it sucks because I, I love Tim Anderson. I, I loved Tim Anderson, I should say, uh, for a while. And he gave White Sox fans a ton of very, very fun memories. And he's going to be remembered in the city of Chicago and uh, in White Sox history for some of the moments that he gave us. It's just... It, it's it's time to move on for me. And, and Tim needs a, a fresh start. The White Sox need a fresh start. And I'm I'm more interested in going elsewhere. So I, I don't hate this choice at all. Yeah, and don't hear me saying that I have some kind of sentimental or emotional attachment to Tim Anderson. That ship sailed. I I agree with you about the White Sox need to change their culture. And that's something that Rick Hahn talked about before he was fired. That's something that Pedro Griffol has talked about since then. That's something that Chris Getz talked about as soon as he came in. 
is there, there's a problem with the culture on this team and it needs to be changed. And I don't know that Tim Anderson was responsible for that, but he was guilty by association. Yeah, I, I it mean, really doesn't matter if he's responsible for it. Like, no. and you need to, in my opinion, like I said, clean your hands of everybody possible. Now there's some guys that it's not possible either for baseball reasons, for salary reasons, or for whatever reason. I mean, a guy like Luis Robert Jr., you don't want to clean your hands of. Somebody like Dylan Cease, you really can't because of how handcuffed you are by your starting pitching. I think it's a mistake to retain Pedro Grifol, and a lot of people don't blame him for what happened. I, I'd fire everybody. I'd fire Ethan Katz. I'd fire the whole, the whole shebang here, and I, I tend to like Ethan Katz. But as many players as you can possibly turn over to like an equivalent from a different organization at this point feels like a good move. Yeah. And and I guess the only attachment that I have to Anderson is just knowing what he's capable of on the field because of what he's done before. And me not necessarily believing that this is who he is now. I like, I don't know that he'll ever be a batting champion again, but I feel like there's more there like he's he's capable of more than he has done the last year and a half and i expect that he's going to improve and an improved tim anderson on the field i'm not sure is like i'm not sure there's a better option out there so that that's the only reason that i'm hesitant it has nothing to do with sentimental value or anything like that and yeah. i i totally agree with you about needing a change and it's kind of refreshing to see you know, Chris Getz kind of coming in here and he's hired a few people from outside the organization. He's made a tough decision already about a member of someone that the White Sox would have considered their core. So I'm interested to see how the rest of it goes in terms of changes. But that, and that's my only thing. Yeah. So I do think Tim Anderson has more in the tank than he has shown and the capability to bounce back. I just, I think I'm rather low on the idea that he can do that with the White Sox. I don't think his heart is on the South side anymore. Uh, I don't think he is totally buying into what's going on. And I, I certainly don't think he will, uh, with how I expect this team to look on opening day. And I don't expect the expectation to be all that high. And how does Tim handle, uh, you know, another losing team at his age? I think he's better off going somewhere that he can be a spark plug on a fun team. uh, And that will bring out the best in Tim Anderson. And I'm rooting for that for him. Excited to see that. I just, I don't feel like that bounce back that I, you and I both agree is possible for him is possible with the White Sox. Uh, And if I have it my way, like I said, two equivalents, but one of them is just a fresh face that I'm like, oh, we'll see how this meshes. I think I'm going with the fresh face nine times out of 10 at this point. I've also heard a rumor, and I don't know how much truth there is to this, but it could be a similar situation to Liam Hendricks. The the White Sox could be interested in bringing him back at a cheaper deal. Um, He, Tim has also mentioned since the season ended that he's open to a position change. He's potentially open to playing second base. So I've heard some speculation that the White Sox may bring Anderson back to a, a, at a cheaper contract and have him play second base. Um, So again, we'll see what happens, but I feel like there's a contending team uh, 
in Los Angeles that doesn't really have a shortstop right now. And it doesn't even like him, Anderson. I mean, it, yeah, it doesn't even need to be them. Like, and you're referring to the Dodgers, of course, but like it, it could be any number of teams that are uh, in the top half of the league and could use a guy on either side of the middle infield. And I think if you insert Tim Anderson, like, for example, they don't need him and they won't sign him. But for example, put Tim Anderson on that Philadelphia Phillies team and tell me that he's not absolutely electric five nights a week. Like, it, I I think, you know, there is somewhere like that out there for him. Maybe it's with the White Sox. Maybe it's not. I, I would be in favor of that if you talk about bringing Tim back on like a $5 million deal and you're whatever it is and you're able to do it for less money, at that point, the risk is probably worth uh, the reward here. Well, if that happens, I feel like that's because Tim has gone to free agency and has realized he's probably not getting as much money as he would like, and he needs a one-year prove-it deal. So I, I feel like in that case, if that were to happen, maybe him and the White Sox circle back, and they're like, hey, we'd love to have you back for this much, uh, and then next year, you know, Bounce back next year, you'll hit it again. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I'm confident that he will land somewhere. Um, my bigger concern is the White Sox now have two open spots in the middle infield. So, yeah. well, I mean, the, yeah, that is the negative of it, right? Is I, I mentioned the players that you were certain about their, uh, their status on the team. And Tim Anderson was not one of those guys, one of those 10 guys I mentioned. But you were uh, like, oh, well, maybe they'll pick up Tim Anderson's option. And then you've got one of the middle infield spots taken care of. And it's not. So along with three and a half starting pitchers and a right fielder and, you know, a major league caliber catcher, the White Sox also have a second baseman and a shortstop to go find, uh, adding to the laundry list of problems they have. So, Noah, would you like to hear what I cooked up this evening or earlier this afternoon, I guess? I'm very curious to hear what you have to say, and I would love to hear it because so, I, the thought of even sitting down and coming up with a way to fix this team like gives me a headache, and I, it's super intimidating. So I would love to hear what you have. I need to clarify. I, I don't think I fixed this team. Like the team that I have on paper in front of me right now, it's a 26-man roster with the depth laid out on the right side. I don't believe this team is a playoff team. But I believe this team is watchable and uh, has a change in culture. And if everything clicks and goes right, could make a playoff push. You never know. Uh, but I, I just I believe this is actually a major league roster that I've got here and a, one that White Sox fans will enjoy watching play baseball, which you cannot say about, about the the team of last year. So there are some aspects of this that are fixed and I tried to address as many issues as possible. Another disclaimer, this is not going to happen. This is very, very, very unrealistic and none of the moves are unrealistic. Noah, all of these moves I think are, are fair. All of the free agent contracts I used, uh, Spotrack's a relative market value predictor to predict their average annual value and contract length. Uh, and I kept it close to what the estimator came up with. I used uh, 
trade value simulators to try and make sure all of my trades were balanced and fair and did some research into what certain teams are asking for certain players. So I came away with a team that has a payroll of $172 million. That includes all of the minors. That includes all the guys on major league minimum. That is post-ARB using the post-ARB prediction figures from Spotrack as well, and all of the dead and deferred cap. That would be the total cap for the, or the total payroll for the White Sox, which is certainly not an unrealistic number uh, by just baseball perspective in general. The reason this is unrealistic is it took me so many damn moves to fill out this roster. I don't think there's any way one general manager can make this much happen in one offseason. But let's get started. So going down the list, uh, I started. Heavy in free agency. Uh, Keeping in mind, I started with an estimated payroll of $115 million. So I, along the way, gained $57 million in payroll to the White Sox. Here's how we did it. We signed three starting pitchers off the bat. Uh, One of them, an old friend with Lucas Giolito, returning to the Chicago White Sox on a one-year deal worth $12 million with a mutual option for 2025. Giolito is in a prove-it spot. He has his buddy Ethan Katz over here. He's expressed a willingness to come back to the White Sox organization in the past, and if he needs to reestablish some value, what better place for him to do it than with the White Sox, who desperately need some starting pitching help? That's number one. Number two, while we're on the Ethan Katz train, we might as well go get Jack Flaherty as well. Lucas Giolito's friend and high school teammate at Harvard Westlake High School, another guy in a similar spot looking to reestablish his value. You know he has ace potential and the ability to be a really impactful starting pitcher. You give him a two-year contract worth $20 million and 10 years or $10 million in average annual value. The third major league starter that you signed to add to this rotation, you need a lefty. I'm going and getting Alex Wood. Two years, $13 million, six and a half per year to bring Alex Wood in. Pretty reliable guy that you can stick right in the middle of that rotation. You add Giolito, Wood, and Flaherty between Cease and Kopech. You have a major league rotation to start the season. Noah, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I... I'd be on board. Um, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of Alex Wood, but if he's your number five starter, that's probably okay. Uh, and then when he inevitably ends up on the injured list, then you've got a couple of prospects. That the you one think concern with him. Though. So I do address that. Uh, I mean, I, I do go and I'll explain. Like one of the biggest things here is the White Sox are going to have to add depth regardless. Like they're going to have to sign three or four starting pitchers or relief pitchers that have starting potential that they can sign to minor league deals and throw in AAA and have ready to go. <laughs> like you're going to have to add some depth because their like farm system does not have anything close really right now that you feel actually confident as like a major league player. So they have to add something there. Um, but that is where I started. Actually, my next signing, I can go ahead and get this out of the way. There are two other guys. Number one, I had uh, Luke Weaver signing to the White Sox on a minor league deal. You throw him in AAA, you got to plug and play him if you need him. And then this guy having the major league bullpen, uh, 
Eric Lauer, left-hander, one year, two million. You throw him as like your long relief guy. He's there to plug into the rotation as well. So spend $2 million to add Eric Lauer to the bullpen. I wouldn't even consider him like guaranteed for the bullpen. I mean, the guy, the guy was pretty good for Milwaukee and I like, I don't know what happened. Uh, Maybe I haven't paid close enough attention, but I feel like he had pretty good numbers in 2022 and then just kind of lost his rotation spot. So, Well, 20 starts in 2021, he had a 319 ERA. 2022 and 29 starts was 11 and 7 with a 369, but really, really fell off the map last year in 10 games, had a 656 ERA, gave up 30, uh, 39 runs and 46 innings. It was a bad age 28 season. So, uh, it makes sense for him to look for a one-year deal going into an age 29 season. If you can have that big season, potentially get a nice contract uh, going into age 30. So uh, he's somebody who you could bring in if you were the White Sox for probably very cheap. Like I said, Spotrack had him estimated to make just about $2 million this year. Uh, and if you can go and sign him for that, you throw him on the major league roster. You use him as kind of a hybrid between the bullpen and the rotation, depending on how you view Michael Kopech and uh, a pretty good pitcher that I think you can add to the staff. I feel like over the last couple of years or the majority of the years, at least since Ethan Katz has been the White Sox pitching coach, they've kind of given him the opportunity to have a reclamation project um, Carlos Rodon in 2021, Vince Velasquez in 2022. It's been that guy that's like not coming off a bad year, but like, you know, he has good stuff and they've signed him for like two or $3 million. And Eric Lauer would seem to fit that kind of, uh, that kind of player. So maybe we do see them do something like that. I wouldn't be opposed to them doing that as depth. Um, in terms of your pitching moves as a whole, uh, the White Sox way would be to only sign two of those guys and then have Eric Lauer uh, be the number five starter, regardless of whether he's he's good or not. So I think that's more realistic. Um, I don't see the White Sox signing three quality major yeah. league starting pitchers, but I think it'll be I think maybe they'll sign two veteran starters and then that fifth spot's probably going to be a combination of a, a minor league signing slash one of their prospects. Um, maybe slash like Jesse Schultons. Yeah. I mean, so, but like with these moves, right, I, I have the White Sox staff being Cease with Giolito, Wood, Flaherty, Kopech, Lauer as all starting rotation options. Those guys you mentioned, Jesse Schultons, I have in the bullpen, but Tugi Toussaint, also a guy that could be in the bullpen, could be in the rotation. I mentioned like a potential minor league signing of Luke Weaver. You've got guys like Nick Nestrini that might be up at some point next year. Uh, this gives them options. Uh, and as we saw last year, you can never have too many of those when it comes to starting pitching. You probably need eight guys you'd feel comfortable starting a couple games for you uh, in the organization. The White Sox have had a tendency to go in with five or six uh, and then been surprised when Jose Urania was their number three starter at the end of the year. So we can't have any of that. Uh, and I think that this also I, I did note this when I was going over my roster and you would know better than me. What's Davis Martin's status right now? I think he'll be back like midseason. He had Tommy John, I want to okay. say in May or June. So another name relevant when you talk about potentially filling out the back end of that staff. 
The only yeah, other, I, mean, I I would love it if they had that kind of depth, but like you said, they they tend to go into the season like just barely filling out a five man rotation, and they're at the point where like if anyone gets hurt, we're starting someone that has no business being in the major leagues. So that's what I expect. Um, but if they, I mean, if they did what you said and they got a few starting pitchers here, and they ended up with like seven or eight guys who you you're like. You know, not necessarily they're all good, but it's like we could give this guy a ball on any given night and he could give us a, a keep us in the game, you know, like I would love that. I'd yeah. leave it when I see it. But so the only other signing I had them making uh, to the pitching staff was I, I had them throwing two million dollars at Jose Cisnero uh, to come and join the bullpen. Uh, another guy. Played 63 games last year for the Tigers, had a 531 ERA, uh, kind of a blow up of a season after a, a 108 ERA the year before in 28 outings. So uh, he's got some experience. He has pitched at the back end of games uh, and has 244 holds in his major league career. So uh, actually, I don't think that's right at all. I might be looking at hits. Either way, he has finished 59 games, finished 18 of them last year in games finished. So uh, he familiar with some of those late inning situations uh, and a guy with some experience that I was just like, I feel like you need another experienced arm. Because when I was going over my bullpen and we'll recap it all at the end, it was a lot of guys on the major league minimum, uh, almost all on the major league minimum. And I'm like, yeah, we might need to get just a veteran arm in here. So uh you're going to see this theme throughout a lot of my uh, moves here, Noah. And this is ultimately, I guess, what I expect from the White Sox is guys that have had recent success, but are coming off of bad seasons or need to reestablish value. Like the White Sox are going to have to bargain hunt a little bit. They're going to have to find guys that are going for cheaper than uh, they should be. And ultimately, I think the White Sox are like the ultimate destination for anybody who needs to reestablish free agent value. There's the They don't want to make a ton of long-term commitments. They really just need a stopgap that can be relatively competitive while they continue to groom some of these prospects and see what they have. So anybody who needs to come in at a shortstop, at a starting pitching spot, at right field, and have one year to say, hey, this is what I still got, or let me get some ABs, the White Sox are a decent option for that, uh, and that will carry over as I give you some of my uh, you know, position player moves. Yeah, I almost feel like those are the kind of moves that the White Sox should be making, and it feels weird to say that because in the past, like those are the kind of moves that would just make us roll our eyes because during the years of this contention window, quote-unquote, I mean – the, it feels like these were the kind of moves they made and they yeah. almost never worked out. And so now we're, now we're at a position where like, it almost feels like this is what they should do. The thing that they've been it's, doing for the last five years. It's is their what- only option. And, and like, that sucks. But like I, I, White Sox fans expecting them to play at the top of the free agent pool. Obviously it's not going to happen, but number two, it just, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Like, I mean, sure, if you can sign Cody Bellinger for, like, five years or something like that, like, I'm all for that. But, like, for the most part, you're not locking a lot of these dudes up to long-term deals. And why, like, I just don't see how it makes sense for somebody like Chris Getz and for this White Sox front office to, like, 
be spending big on premium talent free agents when ultimately they're looking for stop gaps. Like they're going to be looking for like, you're not, even if there were better shortstops on the market, I don't think you're in a spot to like go sign a shortstop for six years when Colson Montgomery is probably up in 2024. So it it's weird, uh, but you can't fill all of these holes with premium talent right now. And you have too many holes to fill that it feels like you pretty much have no choice. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, like I said about shortstop specifically, they don't need someone that's going to be a long-term answer. They need a stop gap. And the other thing that you have to consider when they're making these moves is like, there's that wave of prospects coming up that many of them may not be up this year, but you're looking at 2025 potentially. And you can trade some of these guys if they have value too. Right. So if you get if you get to July and you're not really in it, but you've got a couple of these guys that are having bounce back seasons, trade them and get some more prospects. And just like last year, you can target guys who are a year or less away from the major leagues, and they can help. You know, be more reinforcements that are coming up. I think what the difference needs to be, and the White Sox did the supplemental spending last time and it, it didn't really work out because their core wasn't good. So the core, the core didn't develop and instead you, you spent supplementally to supplement a core that wasn't good. And you ended up with a bunch of supplemental pieces on your team and that didn't make a very good team. What they need to do is they need to develop a core and they need to make sure that this core is in place and then spend supplementally. And that this core comes up around, players who play the game the right way, that they're taught the right things. Um, And this is another thing that like impacts the type of players that I'm looking to acquire. If I'm the white Sox, specifically on the position player side of things is like, who do I want my players learning from who does things the right way that can establish a culture of white Sox baseball that just doesn't suck. Like just like do, do things the way a baseball organization in 2023 should And if that means you win 80 games this year, but you bring up some of these players around an atmosphere of winning and you develop them correctly, well, now you've positioned yourself to get a second chance at those supplementing free agent additions that we talked about. Uh, And so, like, you need to throw something at the fan and kind of just hope it sticks a little bit. But I, you know, I've seen some of the the stuff on White Sox Twitter of these plans to go get Cody Bellinger and sign Blake Snell and Yamamoto or whatever the dude's name is coming over from Japan. And you're playing in the top end of this free agent pool. Um, I just don't see how that aligns with the White Sox long term vision for this team or like their finances or why those players would want to come to the White Sox at this point that none of that really makes sense to me. Yeah. And there's also the argument that I've heard, which is, well, if you're not going to do something like that, then you might as well just, you know, throw Lenin Sosa at shortstop and Romy Gonzalez and right. see, just see what these guys but have. You can't tank. <laughs> you can't tank. Yeah. With the new system. I mean, the lottery hasn't happened this year yet, but the overwhelming odds are that the White Sox will be in the top five this year, meaning next year, doesn't matter how bad they are, they could be the worst team in baseball and they'll get the number 10 pick. So it just doesn't make sense to intentionally throw a bad team out there. I mean, they're better off just 
signing a bunch of veterans, getting a bunch of guys who are bounce back candidates, hoping some of them bounce back, maybe enough of them bounce back that they're playing meaningful games in August. Who knows? But it just it doesn't make sense to me to just not try. Well, and some some of these guys don't it doesn't all have to be one year deals either. Like I said, like a guy like Jack Flaherty on a two year contract. Like if he has a good year for you, he sticks around for 2025. Uh, Alex Wood, I had on a two-year deal as well, and he could stick around. And there's other players on here uh, that are not just like a one and done in terms of control. Now, some of these guys are, they're purely one-year guys. Uh, but if you can find a couple of these players that you can get two years out of, right? a good example, I think, is like a James McCann. The White Sox signed James McCann for whatever two-year deal or three-year deal it was. And he comes out and has like a huge bounce back season. And now you're like, wow, we have a a good, valuable player here that we now have for the next couple seasons that we can carry this over. So as these prospects start to come up, right, and and you're elevating some of these starting pitching prospects and looking to supplement that next group, right? Maybe Jack Flaherty is a part of your 2025 rotation as well as your 2024 rotation. And it makes it easier for Chris Getz and them to get back to contending sooner. Um, Let's move to the position players here. Do you want me to go? I have two trades on the position player side of things. Do you want me to go with the free agent signings first or the trades first? Uh, Let's just keep going with the free agent signings. We can do the trades after. All right. This first one is a big culture fit for me. Uh, It's not sexy. People aren't going to like the money it carries in one year, but I I really like this culture fit. Outfield, right fielder, potential DH full-time. I'm signing Tommy Pham. One year, $9 million. Tommy Pham. Uh, I don't know if you've listened to the recent White Sox Talk podcast, Noah, where Chuck Garfine shared a quote from Francisco Lindor when Tommy Pham was on the Mets. Lindor said, Tommy Pham taught me how to work again. Taught him how to work out, how to work. he has playoff experience, recent playoff experience, some big clutch hits, not amazing, can get the job done, and uh, appears to be a very good teammate who has a little bit of a spark to him. So, you know, outside organizations don't love Tommy Pham. I would love Tommy Pham to just come and influence some of the White Sox to do the right things on a daily basis. Yeah, I like the player. I think he's good. I think he's a good clubhouse guy. I'm not sure he'd want to come here, though. I don't know. Tommy Pham signed with the Reds as a veteran before. Uh, when yeah, but they that were was tanking. a completely that was a different scenario. He was coming off a bad year, looking for a value to build some of his value back. But he actually had a pretty good year this year, and yeah. he just made the World Series with the Diamondbacks. So I'm not sure he's looking to go to a team that he's not sure is going to be contending. Uh, and he also might be looking for more than just a one-year deal. I don't I don't think you mentioned what you have as the I have deal a board, I have but... a one-year $9 million deal. Uh I don't know if Tommy Fay he's going to be 36 on opening day. I don't know if anybody's signing him to more than a more than a one-year deal here. So uh maybe one year with a team option is something that that could happen for him, but uh that's what I have. I he's somebody who like I said in the past has been like, "Hey, I'm trying to get my numbers, bro. I'm trying to trying to drive up these career stats." You can offer him a lot of ABs in Chicago and uh, you know a leadership role, so maybe he wants to spend some time in the windy city at age 36 and you know, if you can make it happen, sign me up for it. Yeah. I if he's willing, I'm on board. Um but I I am not sure if that is 
something that he will be interested in, but it's worth an ask. All right. Next one. Uh, here's my shortstop for you. And the reason I really like this guy and I have him getting signed to a three-year contract is because, uh, he can move to second base in an instant and, uh, really make the White Sox better defensively in the middle infield from second base whenever Colson Montgomery is ready. And I think has the upside to be a very productive shortstop for you as well. So three years and $20 million, come on down Ahmed Rosario to the Chicago White Sox. So Ahmed Rosario, three years, 20 million signs with the Sox. He's their opening day shortstop. Like I said, if Colson is ready, you move Ahmed over to second base um, where he was much better defensively with the Dodgers after he made that move over there. But uh, that's something that I like, who I think you could give him three years. He's still rather young. Uh, I believe he's 28 years old uh, and showed some signs of a bounce back when he was traded to the Dodgers. Ahmed Rosario, let me check real quick. Uh, he's 27, going to be 28 on opening day. And in 48 games with the Dodgers, did have a 709 OPS, like a little bit better than he was in Cleveland. And he's been about league average offensively in four of the last five seasons. So I don't hate this. Yeah, he was like the one name on the shortstop list that I kind of looked at. And I was like, yeah, that'd be fine. Um, Obviously not coming off his best season. So I'm not sure a three-year deal is something you could sell him on. I think he may be the kind of guy that's looking for that one-year bounce back deal. Uh, But even on a one-year deal, I wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me. I, like I said, the Sox aren't looking for a long-term answer at shortstop. They're looking for a guy who can play there this year while Colson Montgomery gets ready with the idea being either by the end of this year or the start of next year, Montgomery is your shortstop for the next 15 years. So, you know, one-year deal for Rosario, that'd be fine. Serviceable. Even if he has a repeat of last year, it, it's better than the season Tim Anderson had last year. So I I wouldn't be upset. Plus, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't that... play him 15 times a year in Cleveland, and <laughs> instead he'd play them. And yeah. we could see I'm... maybe maybe there'd be quite a few revenge games in Cleveland. Yeah, that's the other thing for me. Like you said, it was a it was a down year for him last year. Uh, really, the the worst year of his career since he's been like a full time big leaguer. Uh, and even then, he hit 263, had a 683 uh, OPS, had six home runs and 15 stolen bases. Still more productive than what you got out of Tim Anderson last year. I do think he's a better player than that overall. I think he's a guy who could hit, you know, 10 to 15 home runs for you, steal 15 bases for you, just play fine defense. So uh, I like this fit in terms of like just trying to field some major league players out there that aren't going to have 400 OPSs. Uh, <laughs> so that's what I have there. Uh my next one, cover your ears. Uh, it's Whit Merrifield on a one-year, $7 million contract to play second base. Uh, some versatility there as well to potentially stick in the corner outfield. Um, so Whit Merrifield, one-year, $7 million, really just a culture guy. And I understand White Sox fans I hate this idea. They're like, oh, he sucks. He's not a good player. This would be a stupid move for the White Sox. I cannot emphasize enough how bad the players on the White Sox roster are. Like, your players, like, would be cut by most organizations. And if you think, like, sticking Zach Remillard out there again is going to be a better alternative for the White Sox than bringing in somebody like Whit Merrifield on a one-year contract, you are sorely mistaken. So 
one year, 7 million, go steal some bases, go bring a little bit of energy and just like show up to work every day, uh, be league average if possible. And let's start doing the right things <laughs> like that. It, I know it's not, not pretty, but it's a major league player that you can stick at second base. And what the production they got out of that spot last year was just unbelievably awful as well. I've started to warm up to this idea a little bit. Uh, I know we talked a little bit like a week or so ago and I was, you hated it. (laughs) I was adamantly against it, but I think that you along with some other people and um, just kind of thinking about it more have started to bring me around. I'm not going to say that I am fully a hundred percent on board with Whit Merrifield, but it's the idea again of, you might as well try it because it's better than anything you have right now. Exactly. There's not not really a ton of options. And I've kind of, I've gotten over the idea that the white Sox are going to go out and actually acquire all stars and, you know, turn this thing around. So, well, and, and like you, I, I don't view the white Sox as being a team that like need to have every position on the diamond, be some superstar. And I get like that. That's obviously desirable, their biggest problem, quite frankly, Noah, during why this like core was not supplemented properly and didn't work was that so many of these supplemental pieces that they added were so bad that they were like, you didn't add anything at all. It's like you come into these seasons with Elvis Andrews as your second baseman. His OPS is 550 at some point in July. And then you're like, man, what's wrong with the White Sox? It's like sometimes if they just had a league average player who did, who was fine every day, kind of like what Andrew Benintendi was last year, how you're just like, he's fine. Like he, he's not going to be a, a complete detriment to your season. If you can have a couple of those guys in your lineup surrounding the star players of like Luis Robert and guys who go boom. Now the White Sox need more guys that go boom, but I'm not going to complain about just having like a major league player at, at a position that has been a black hole for the last decade. Yeah. I, like I said, I'm starting to warm up to it and I, I've gotten over the fact that the two choices here are contending or tanking. I, I think there's a, a middle ground that I would like to see them go at the very least. So we'll see. Um, anyone that has ties to the Royals, I think is probably what they're going to end up doing. So. Yeah. Well, uh, that's my middle infield. Ahmed Rosario and Whit Merrifield are the starting uh, shortstop second base combination. And then, of course, you've got guys like Lenin Sosa, Jose Rodriguez, uh, Colson Montgomery, all kind of in the pipeline as uh, as other potential solutions over there. Romy Gonzalez, I don't know if he makes the team. Um, got a couple more for you here, though. So... Uh, I have added Whit Merrifield, Ahmed Rosario, and Tommy Pham to the uh, lineup via free agency. One more free agent being signed. He is not uh, an everyday player, but I think he gives them another potential outfielder, potential first baseman that could be better than Gavin Sheets, uh, has good defense in the outfield as well and can just kind of sit at DH if you have to, to keep him a little bit healthier. It's a name I've been asking for for a while, and it is a one-year, $5 million deal to Mr. Adam Duvall. Adam Duvall, 
who uh, was pretty good for the Red Sox last year, had uh, 21 home runs in 92 games. So uh, there's a lot of pop there, was not really able to stay healthy. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't know what Adam Duvall's interest would be in coming to the White Sox. I would be all over it. Uh, and I was kind of surprised that the estimate for him was this low when I was uh, scrolling through Spotrack. But one year, $5 million for Adam Duvall, like I said, a guy who could DH for you, give you some pop. Uh, I don't have him as my everyday right fielder, nor do I have Tommy Pham as my everyday right fielder. We'll get to that when we get to the trades. But Adam Duvall as a player that I think could really help the White Sox have some some quality bench play throughout the season and could rotate in with Tommy Pham as, as your DH. If you go back to one of our first two or three we episodes. We were all over him. We, we were you... all over him. You liked him. I liked him. And it was a disappointment when he went to the Red Sox because I really thought that he was a good fit for the team last year. I think that the black hole that was right field because, shockingly, Oscar Colas came up and wasn't good, um, which is kind of what we were afraid of. I think that that would have been much more manageable had you had a guy like Adam Duvall who could step in and uh, play a quality right field. So I'm always open to that kind of move, and I do like the player. I think he's definitely got some pop still in his bat. I mean, like you said, 21 home runs in 90-something games last year. That's pretty good. So sign me up. Would enjoy watching him hit some uh, some shots into that left field bullpen. Um Two trades for you. So buckle up because this is where we get a little. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I would say I get a little. Uh, it's some wishful thinking here as much as it is just kind of throwing darts blindly and hoping like, I have a bullseye. Not here, man. So I am trading Eloy Jimenez. Uh, and I'm making a phone call to a team that that loves them some pop and a team who has a position of need of mine in surplus. And that team is the Toronto Blue Jays. And I'm going to say, hey, you've already got great outfield defense, but you could use a little bit of juice in that lineup uh, and, you know, add another power bat. We know you guys like your home runs out there in Toronto. So I'm sending Eloy Jimenez to the Toronto Blue Jays for catcher Danny Jansen and left-handed pitcher Genesis Cabrera. Uh, You add Genesis Cabrera as a lefty to your pen. Danny Jansen, who is good, but more of like a platoon catcher, really, at best. He's very good against, I believe it's left-handed pitching that he can hit very well, uh, but only really plays half the time. But you do get yourself a good quality major league catcher to start most of your games, and you add a relief pitcher to your bullpen for Eloy Jimenez and uh, just do a little bit of a shakeup. This is another example of the White Sox in my eyes, taking a guy that they love, but say we need to, to uh, get a fresh start here. So your thoughts on that trade. I'm concerned. Uh, and it's not a concern. Like I, I like Danny Jansen. I think he's good. I, I think, him and Corey Lee platooning at catcher, I think, is an interesting idea. Um, Corey Lee being a left-handed hitter hits better against righties. Danny Jansen, the opposite. Corey Lee's I, a righty. Is he? Oh, yeah. well. But I do I, believe he has reverse I, splits. Maybe. So. Um, but my concern is uh, 
Is there any team in baseball that's going to hit less home runs than the White Sox? If you trade away Eloy Jimenez and you sign some of these guys like Maryfield, Rosario, neither one of them hit a ton of home runs. I I mean, Luis Robert, I mean, the, the really hope, your only power hitter. Yeah, the hope is, I mean, Luis Robert repeats 35 to 40, and you can get 15 from Moncada and 25 from Andrew Vaughn, and you can get, you know, 20 from Adam Duvall and – 15 from Tommy Pham and you know Danny Jansen has he hit 17 home runs as a platoon guy as well so give you some pop at catcher uh I I think the White Sox here and at least in my version of them here doesn't have too many 30 home run sluggers unless Andrew Vaughn really takes that jump this year but doesn't have too many 30 home run sluggers but has guys who can hit in the 15 to 20 range where you're like okay well as a team they're they're hitting enough I guess, yeah. I I think that they need more home run hitters, and maybe that's a, a problem that you solve later once you have your core in place, but I think that's been one of the major issues the past couple of years with their offense is that they're not hitting enough home runs. So trading away a guy like Eloy Jimenez, who has never shown that he's capable of staying healthy, but we know that he has 40-plus home run power when he is, is just a little bit concerning to me. Yeah, and I guess I was a bit wrong. I'm looking at Danny Jansen's uh, splits right now. It was actually pretty even and had more home runs against righties last year than he did against uh, lefties. I'm going to check out the career splits for him. And he's actually a better hitter against right-handed pitching. So there, there's a you know 762 career OPS against right-handed pitching and 700 against lefties. Uh, so there's your platoon, right? Corey Lee faces the lefties as the right-handed bat. Danny Jansen with the reverse splits faces the righties uh, and maybe takes just a, a little bit more of that load as, you know, the guy who's actually has a body of work of success in the major leagues. But I think fills a big need there. Here's my other one. And it's going to sound blasphemous, but I was doing some research. I'm sending Aaron Bummer to the Boston Red Sox for Alex Verdugo. Feels like cough, cough. Why would the Red Sox give up Alex Verdugo for Aaron Bummer? But, you know, recent reports that I've been reading out of Boston say for the contract that Alex Verdugo has this year, the White Sox would be taking on a little bit of money on this one. They'd be taking on $4 million. So Boston would clear some money. You could also pay some of Aaron Bummer's contract. Uh, And... A report said that Boston is really only looking for a mid-level infielder or relief pitcher for Alex Verdugo. They they just had a, you know, changing of the guard there in Boston with the front office. It just hasn't worked. Somebody who they feel like definitely needs a fresh start. They're looking to add to that bullpen. So the, you know, the advanced stats and that analytics like Aaron Bummer a lot, uh, perhaps they find some value in him and would rather take some of the cap flexibility. So Aaron Bummer goes to the Boston Red Sox. The White Sox give him a couple couple million dollars in cap flexibility, and Alex Verdugo is the starting right fielder in Chicago on opening day. I think that's a good trade. I mean, I it feels like a weird matchup, like you said. I, like, I kind of find that hard to believe that Boston just wants like a relief pitcher for Verdugo, but if they do... I mean, yeah, for it. I mean, I was reading it. I was reading it earlier today in SI.com. There was somebody from the athletic who said Verdugo, certainly a trade candidate. 
Teams know they're getting an average hitter, an above-average defender, but one that might come with some disciplinary issues. I still think Verdugo could be traded for a mid-level infielder or a reliever, but I think Jaron Duran would garner a player with more years or control and upside. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, if Boston's looking to shop him, another guy who needs to reestablish some value here before he hits the free agent market, uh, Alex Verdugo. Come buy into things in Chicago. Come be the man. White Sox fans, I think, would love him just from having a little swagger and stuff and, you know, us needing a player that doesn't suck. So another guy that can hit 15 home runs for you. Could you imagine the Red Sox realizing that they traded Mookie Betts for Aaron Bummer if Alex (laughs) Verdugo came over here? Yeah, Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know. (laughs) He's had an OPS plus of 100 or higher in five straight seasons uh, and plays very good defense out there in the outfield. So... Ben yeah, and Robert Verdugo, that's a big thumbs up of an outfield. Like I said, I I was a little surprised as well, but it, you know, if a reliever is what it takes to get it done, Aaron Bummer, pay some of the salary. I'll throw in a prospect if that's what it takes. And, uh, you know, let's bring in Verdugo. Also Ben and and Verdugo, former teammates in Boston. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure Ben and could tell you about what kind of guy he is. I'm sure. So, yeah, I mean, maybe you put a little bug in his ear and say, "How, hey, how is this guy? Will he buy in? Will he bring us some energy? You know, let's do that. So those are my two trades that I have. Uh, and so, Noah, after all of that, the White Sox would gain $57 million in cap. They would have an estimated payroll of $172 million. Your team, just to recap, Danny Jansen catching, Andrew Vaughn at first base. Whit Merrifield and Ahmed Rosario are your middle infielders. Yoan Moncada sticks at third base because I don't think anybody would take his contract. So I think you're stuck with him and you just hope that he looks like the guy he was at the end of the year more frequently. Uh, outfield left to right goes Benintendi, Robert Verdugo, Tommy Pham, and Adam Duvall platoon in as potential corner outfielders and DHs. Corey Lee is the other catcher. Other bench options include Oscar Colas, Lenin Sosa, Gavin Sheets, uh, Zach Remillard, Jose Rodriguez, whatever, uh, with Brian Ramos and Colson Montgomery in the pipeline potentially coming up soon. Your starting rotation is Cease, Giolito, Flaherty, Kopech, Wood. You add a left-handed starter in there, which the White Sox have not had uh, in many recent years, but Cease, Giolito, Wood, Kopech, and Flaherty. Uh, Eric Lauer is a long reliever slash sixth starter for you. Jesse Schultens, Johan Ramirez, Jose Cisnero, Garrett Crochet, Genesis Cabrera, Lane Ramsey, and Greg Santos as the closer. Uh, of course, you've got Luis Patino, Tuki Toussaint, Sammy Peralta, Alex Spees, Padilla, Tanner Banks, Declan Cronin, whoever else you want to potentially throw into that bullpen. I think this is a team that I just crafted that fits within a realistic payroll that White Sox fans would be excited to watch at least at the beginning of the year, because there's some fresh fun faces. Yeah. I like watching Jack Flaherty pitch, watching Alex Verdugo uh, and some of these guys play, uh, I think would be fun for White Sox fans. And there would be some buy-in. I think you really establish a culture with this roster of guys who work hard for the most part, do things the right way. Um, and, and you really rid yourself of a lot of the stink of last year's team with some fresh faces for when these new prospects come up. No, I don't think you get into any long-term financial trouble. You get rid of a couple contracts you want to get rid of, like Eloy and Aaron Bummer. 
this is a big win for the White Sox. I'd be very happy with this plan. Your overall thoughts? I would be happy if they went into opening day with that team. Um, I know you kind of gave the uh, the warning at the beginning that it's, it's a lot not, of moves yeah. and it's a lot of moves and it would be. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was like two crazy. trades and nine free agent signings. Like that's yeah. just a lot to make happen. Be kind of crazy if Chris Getz were able to pull off all of that. But I, I mean, at least some of those moves, I don't think are horribly unrealistic. And there's probably other guys that are similar that, you know, maybe not all yeah. of these work out exactly sure. but there's someone of a similar caliber so for, for every alex wood there was a you know another pitcher that's going to make sean Manaya who just yeah. out of his giants deal who's similar and right gonna make the same and like salary and be the same type of pitcher for you and for every jack flaherty there's a martin perez and so like yeah there's options here <laughs> yeah for sure so i i mean it's good ideas and that those are the kind of moves that i think they should be making uh going into this offseason and like you said i don't i don't look at that team and think like oh we're so back this is a world series team but right. That team's not bad. I mean, they're they're probably a 500 team with that roster. They have course. potential to be a 500 team, and if things go yeah. bad, they win 70 games and whatever. But you probably move some pieces at the deadline. But it like it's fresh, <laughs> you know. I I mean, this roster has one, two, three. I'm just gonna count real quick: one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, seven, eight. Nine, ten, at least eleven guys on it that were not on last year's major league team at all. That's a positive to me. (laughs) It's a a shift in the core. It's a shift in the culture, and and that's one thing that's definitely needed. Well, and let's look at the problems of last year, right? Like, yeah, Moncada is still here. I think that's fine because you're looking at like no more Yasmani Grandal, no more Tim Anderson, no more Eloy Jimenez, no more. Elvis Andrews, no more. And like, I, none of those guys are necessarily to blame for what happened specifically, but just as a whole, that group had just a lot of stink on it. And, and so, yeah, Luis Robert stays around. Andrew Vaughn stays around. Yoan Moncada stays around. I think those are all guys that could independently succeed moving forward uh, with different talent around them. No, I agree with you. I, I mean, you're not going to completely get rid of everybody, but you can get rid of enough guys and bring in enough new guys that you can really feel like there's a shift and you can, a lot of these guys are veterans and they're leaders and that's what you need. You need some veterans to come in here and be like, this is how, this is how you succeed in major league baseball. So, and I'll tell you this much too. What has been my biggest complaint about, you know, that, that core, the Moncadas and Jimenez's of this, of this team, lack of self-motivation, I think related to contract status. I think the contract security uh, had these guys chilling a little bit, had these guys not working quite as hard. And so you also have a chip on the shoulder for so many of these dudes that Mike Clevenger had coming into spring training where he was like, yeah, I feel like I got to prove something here to go and get my deal. And you saw how that worked out of a guy coming out and just pitching well. So even if you're not buying into like White Sox baseball, have some pride for yourself. (laughs) And when you look at, Alex Verdugo, when you look at Tommy Pham, when you look at Jack Flaherty, when you look at, by the way, Yoan Moncada, who's in like a contract year next year, uh, there's more motivation than there ever has been for these guys to to work hard, be self-motivated, succeed, uh, and go get that bag. Noah, I guess if there's another silver lining here 
It's the fact that I made all of those moves and the payroll sitting at $172 million. I I think that gives White Sox fans some level of hope that it's not impossible for this team to not look terrible. Whether they do enough to make us believe that remains to be seen. I will, you know, be shocked the day that I'm sitting here on March and I'm like, what an off season the Chicago White Sox just had. They did everything I wanted them to do. Uh, and then some, but it is surprising that, you know, I come away with nine free agent signings of potentially impactful major league players and two trades that bring in impactful players. And you can still see a path where the White Sox are at $172 million in payroll and potentially um, looking to compete. Yeah, I mean, that's something that we've seen before, though, is, you know, how much money would it really take for this upgrade? What did Adam Duvall sign with the Red Sox for last year? Like $5 million? Yeah, something slight like that. And we were sitting here saying, is $5 million really a huge deal for, like, that kind of depth that it gives you, that kind of upgrade? But the Sox didn't do it because for whatever reason, they weren't willing to pay $5 million for him. So it's just because we can sit here and say like, you know, there's hope because there's still this much money to spend. That doesn't mean that they're thinking the same way. And I, I've been hurt too many times over the years by seeing, you know, here's a move that they could easily make for not very much money that would just make this team better. And then they don't do it. Right. It's the, uh, the, I, Yeah, the idea of me saying like, well, hey, for $7 million, you can get Whit Merrifield to play, you know, league average second base and potentially, you know, uh, you know, have some versatility. And the White Sox have told me we have Whit Merrifield at home and Whit Merrifield at home is Romy Gonzalez. And they've told me, well, uh, you know, you know, we have Jack Flaherty at home and Jack Flaherty at home is Tuki Toussaint. And you, in fact, do not have those players at home. And so, uh yeah, I mean, you have a lot of reason to believe that, you know, why would they trade for Alex Verdugo when they believe Oscar Colas is going to hit 15 to 20 home runs this year and play good defense in right field? I mean, that's the team that we've come accustomed to know here is the team who way overvalues their own talent within the organization. Uh, and so they severely underestimate what it is going to take in order to field a competitive roster. You know, the difference between the White Sox and good teams, there's a lot of differences, but one of the main differences <laughs> yeah, is Yeah, what a that... start to a sentence. <laughs> the one difference between the White Sox and good teams. No, not the one difference, but one of the differences that's very noticeable is take a team like the Dodgers or Atlanta. They acquire players. They acquire depth because their philosophy is you can never have too much depth because you never know what might happen. And you never know who's going to hit. Like that's a huge thing here too is like, I mean, we mentioned a guy, right? So a guy like Eric Lauer, who I have on this list, who speaks to me, right? Maybe it's double what I had for him. Maybe I had 2 million. Maybe he wants four. Maybe he wants a second year. I, I don't know what he wants, but that's a guy who you could throw a couple million dollars at You could stick him in your bullpen or as your fifth starter to begin the year. And if he sucks, you cut your ties and you say, ah, hey, oh, well, didn't work out. We got more depth coming down. But if he hits, he's like a really solid left-handed pitcher sitting in the middle of your rotation that is a huge piece for like competing. 
And teams like the Dodgers take more shots like that. Teams like insert team here that competes. I, I mean, it, the Rangers, right? Like you and I, we talked about Adam Duvall. We're sitting here like screw Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon, who every White Sox fan wanted. I was sitting here like would have been really happy with Robbie Grossman. I would like, and but that's a team that was here is like, yeah, we have Jonah Heim. Let's go grab Mitch Garver too. Let's go bring in Robbie Grossman to come help Adolis Garcia and Leody Tavares and fill out our outfield with just more depth. We can have another guy. And then these guys come in and they end up playing really well. And look what the Rangers did to that pitching staff. I mean, Jacob deGrom, John Gray, Martin Perez, Nate Eovaldi, Andrew Heaney, Dane Dunning. Like they they kept Andrew Montgomery. Andrew Mon- yeah, yeah, right. Montgomery. They kept adding names to a strength with the idea of one, you might get the best year of Jordan Montgomery's career, the best year out of Nathan Avaldi's career, but also you don't know when Jacob deGrom is going to go down. Oh, Max Scherzer, by the way, at the trade deadline. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. That's the difference. The Dodgers would look at a rotation that they've already have set. They would look at a free agent like Eric Lauer and they'd be like, you know what? Why not? We could use the depth. The White Sox would look at him and say, well, we already have four and a half starting pitchers, and so we don't really need him. We're Why fine. Why would we spend $3 million on yeah. something that we feel like we're fine on? Well, and right. we have, and you know, and we have Nick Nestrini in case anyone goes down. So it's fine. Like exactly. the Dodgers, the Dodgers would look at it and say, we have seven guys that could start. Why not eight? You know, and you never know because maybe there's three injuries and maybe we need an eighth guy. So let's bring him in. So those are the kind of, I mean, that's one of the differences between teams like the Dodgers and the Braves and the good teams and teams like the White Sox is they just don't go that extra step to get depth. And that's something that I would like to see change and we'll see if it does. And it doesn't have to be expensive. Like it, it, it really doesn't have to be what White Sox fans like ask for where it's just like a bunch of the top players in the market every year. Like it can just be a number of guys that you grab and you're just like, like I said, if it doesn't work, oh, well, and it can be $2 million here, $4 million there, major league minimum here, $5 million there, whatever it is. And and yeah, it'll raise your payroll by 20 million every year, but it's also going to make your team, you know, 10 wins more successful for that $20 million uh, and give you a more sustainable organization uh an organization that isn't you know a 93 win up and coming young team that looks like a perennial powerhouse in the al central that two years later is losing 100 games because they have no depth and things started to unravel um that doesn't happen to most teams uh but it happens to the white Sox and I think we kind of, I think this was a productive conversation though, because I feel like this, it it does set the expectation of what kind of moves that, that the Sox I think need to make, which is uh, quantity might, might be more realistic and could even be better than quality. When you start looking at how many different holes there are. Um, And yeah, I I think guys looking to reestablish value with a chip on their shoulder that can, probably get signed for a little bit cheaper than you know teams are willing or that then uh you know you you think and older guys guys over 30 years old guys who have some experience 
You know, if you're signing a 27-year-old free agent, they're probably wanting that four or five-year big money deal. If you're signing the guy that's 32 and, you know, coming off a bad year, you might be able to get, you know, one good year out of him. Yeah, I'm with you. I think this offseason should be about quantity. And once you have that core in place, once you know what you have, then you go for quality. You establish the depth. You establish the the core players of the next time you're going to be competing for a World Series, which, let's face it, is not going to be this year, even if the White Sox tell you it is. It's not. Hmm. Once you have all that established, then you start going for quality. You start going for the guys that you know are like, this is the final piece we need. This is the type of guy we need. Yeah, no, well, and I, I love quality. Don't, like, don't get me don't mistake me saying this for being like, well, you don't want good players. You just want a lot of them. No. I mean, if you can bring in a guy like, I don't, like I think Alex Verdugo is a very quality player, I, regardless of what the situation was. He's a player who I would be in favor of the White Sox acquiring. Um, you know, wh- whether or not you can bring in a guy like that long-term, I don't know. But like I said, they signed Cody Bellinger for five years. Yeah, I'm all over it. Like, give me Cody Bellinger five years, $110 million. I'm going to love that deal. I just, I don't see it as a realistic possibility. So quality is good, but uh, what I don't want to see is White Sox fans moping and whining about them signing like seven, just like average major league players and being like, you didn't go and play for Otani. Like, we do need to understand that we are the Chicago White Sox. We are a bottom of the barrel team right now that top of the market free agents don't necessarily want to play for. We got to take what we can get and try and see if, like you said, we can win some games, turn over some culture. And then, yeah, when Colson Montgomery's at shortstop, Brian Ramos is at third base, you've got some, you know, Edgar Caro is your catcher and you've got some of these younger starting pitchers up, then maybe it's time to go and make a bit of a splash. So, uh, yeah. Free agency starts tomorrow, or I guess today. You guys are going to be listening to this on a Monday. So free agency will open up today when the deadline passes for teams to extend qualifying offers to their impending free agents. And some of the stuff could move fast. Usually we see a couple guys like come off the board on like day one, and then you got a couple week break, and then you got one around Thanksgiving, and then the rest will be towards the winter meetings. But, you know. Well, you got the GM meetings this week, so. They're not usually they're not usually meant for, you know, discussing trades. But when you've got all 30 GMs in one place, I mean, it's kind of inevitable. You'll see a lot of these like lower level guys like this, uh, like random relief pitchers signing one year deals with teams while they can still get their major league money and find a roster spot. So maybe some moving and shaking, but, uh, you know, stuff stuff can be coming down the pipeline anytime now. Uh, And so it's officially time to start talking White Sox offseason. I think next week, Noah and I are going to be doing a like an official predictions podcast here where we kind of, you know, this is my ideal realistic scenario. Next week is going to be our realistic expectation uh, scenario that we both come up with. So yeah, big difference there. <laughs> yeah, big, big difference. Uh, maybe not 11 transactions in that one, but Uh, Thanks, guys, for listening. It was good to be back. Good to talk White Sox baseball again and kind of get back in the mood here before uh, some off-season misery and months of waiting on the Sox to do stuff. But until then, hey, hang it tight and, uh, you know, keep putting crooked, crooked numbers up on that board. We'll see you.